This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. My next guest has just joined us in the studio. Galit Klaas is here to talk about the Ghetto Cabaret, a work uh, being performed at 45 downstairs from the 1st to the 18th of August, which is kind of reframing and representing songs from uh, from the ghettos, from the Jewish ghettos of World War II. And uh, Galit, welcome to Triple R. Thank you, Richard. Now, this, uh, although this is season is happening at 45 downstairs, this work has been around for a couple of years, I believe. That's right. I, um, I first researched it, I was asked by the Kadima Jewish Cultural Centre in 2016 to create an evening of songs from the ghettos. And as I was researching um, the songs, I realised that there was a huge cultural life in the ghettos and it was something that I'd never known about before. I, I just knew about Jews being led like lambs to the slaughter. I knew the, the, about the horrible conditions, but um, the starvation. But I, I didn't know that there was a huge cultural life as well, despite all of those um, other facts of life. And so um, I created back then in 2017... Um, after about an eight-month process of research and development and rehearsals, a a show that was a cabaret of ghetto songs but set in in a ghetto, so as if that cabaret was happening in a ghetto. And the audience were all part of the ghetto as well. Uh, so it's, you've now kind of revisited, so is this an opportunity to not only finesse the work and present it in a... Uh, kind of dramatically with a director and lighting designers and so forth, but also to kind of finesse the content of the show and revisit and re-explore. Uh, absolutely. It's, it's completely... Um it's completely changed. <laughs> it's a, it's very much a developed work, and I've worked uh, closely with Gary Abrahams on that, who encouraged me to explore the horrors. I think last time it was I mean, it was a sad piece, but it was um, at at the end of the day kind of uplifting, and um, I was just showing the the resistance and the spiritual resistance of the artists in the ghettos. But this time also, I've really explored the realities of war and the kind of the horrors that we forget about we don't we don't know about even research that came out sort of more recently and um yeah we worked a lot on that one of the things uh, that struck me several years ago uh, on my first visit visit to the Jewish Holocaust Centre in Elstonwick, where mm. I think you performed this show. No, but we had our we had our dressing room dressing there. Dressing room there, okay. <laughs> we walked from the dressing to the yeah. yeah. Ne- Kadima is next door. Okay, mm. so when I went to the the Holocaust Centre, I, yes, I knew kind of about the history of the Holocaust, mm. and, but I knew it intellectually, and what came home for me was that not just the extermination of people but the attempt to exterminate a culture kind of a rich history of song and storytelling and language and history uh and so that that notion of exploring that culture and bringing it uh celebrating it in this cabaret uh is as soon as i heard about this show it's something that really resonated with me that notion of as you said in your own researches uh yes we know about the history of the of horror but the notion of songs as a form of rebellion and a celebration of culture as a form of rebellion is something that kind of really resonates. Absolutely, and it resonates as much then as it does now. So uh, the songs come from 
from everywhere and they explore all the themes. Some are very sad, but then some are about revenge, uh, hanging in there, you know, don't let yourself, you know, people went quite mad. Don't don't let yourself do that. The war's going to end. Keep yourself together. Some songs were poking fun at the authorities. Like, well, there are some people in the ghetto that are actually eating quite well. And there were songs about that. So... Um, and just using art as rebellion is is the same thing. It was to keep your spirits alive, to poke fun, um, to expose the hypocrisy, and um, and in a call to arms as well. And it and it's the same thing now. In terms of the songs themselves, mm. uh, uh, how many of these were kind of notated, recorded? How much? discovery of the songs themselves did you have to do as well as their history? A lot of them uh, come to us through some ethnomusicologists. Uh, one particular one that worked right after the the Holocaust and um, compiled a book of a couple hundred songs. But then since then, there's been more research done and I, I even found a couple of songs that we really just had audio recordings. Um, and then we, we added in the chords and... Um, sort of straightened out the rhythm a little bit, but the uh, yeah, they've, so they've come from different different places. But a lot of them were notated in some form, and the, and a quite a, a few actually have been performed by by different singers. So some are a bit more famous. Now, for some people listening, may not know much about the ghettos themselves. Mm. So can you give us some context for for what what do we mean by a ghetto? Well, a ghetto was a closed wall section of a city where the Jews were all forced to live. Uh, it's a the first ghettos actually were around in Venice. It's an Italian word and it's I think from the 16th century. They were the first ghettos and they were for Jews. Um, and uh, so but in World War 2, I think there were about um, a thousand ghettos all throughout Europe, uh, somewhere in you know major cities, so Warsaw, uh, Vilna, um, Kovno, and then the other cities had smaller ghettos. So you'd have a walled section of the city. It was very cramped. Um, all the Jews were forced to live there, so you had a problem of refugees. So if you lived in the ghetto, the area that was already walled off before the war started, you were in a better position you, and you owned your house. But if not, you were sort of shipped in from other um, other small villages and you would have nowhere to live so um the conditions were very very crowded sanitation was very bad uh there was a an effort to limit the food supply so you weren't given enough food to um function properly at all and there was this sort of slow starvation that happened as people new people came to the ghetto and then sort of disease took over um and they would perish or be murdered and there was kind of this constant rotation of people anyway that was does that give you an idea yeah yeah. and then the power of music then in that situation as you said is is an act of resistance it's about survival it's about sharing tradition uh and it's about community in action as well yeah that's right well despite all of that there was still all the cultural organisations and even soup kitchens for the refugees and oh, the Jewish administration actually trying to organise as best as they could, though I think they felt like it was some of their attempts were quite futile from what I've read, but um, as much as they could to continue the culture. There, were, there was the library. I mean, there was a lot of work done to preserve the culture and I think when people started to know that... Um, what the Nazis were actually trying to do, then there was even more of an effort to preserve the culture, to start burying archives and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. I get the sense this is, for you, a very personal show. 
Yeah, it is. It's become more personal. Um, it was more personal than I thought it would be, actually, because I was born in Australia. I feel more or less Australian. Um, and and I'm, I'm my parents, I'm Jewish, and my, my parents, I'm first-generation Australian, I suppose. So, But my grandma, uh, she... She loved Yiddish and she sang in Yiddish and um, and the whole side of her family from my dad's side, I guess a lot of them were killed in the Holocaust and I actually never felt that the part of that culture was my culture. So I grew up with a very strong Israeli you know, side, but that, that side, the European side, was really... I uh, wasn't. And it was only when I started looking into it and I read about, because my family, half of them is from Vilna, I read about the uh, artists in the Vilna ghetto and I thought, wow, that's that would have been my culture. Like, if nothing, none of this would have happened, I probably would be, I mean, maybe not in this form, but some something about my ancestors. I would have been there, you know, singing, continuing in that in culture that tra- yeah, and that that's tradition. lost. Yeah. yeah, in that tradition. So. so for you to be able to present this work mm. in Melbourne, is, is uh, it, it's almost your own act of rebellion in, in some ways. It, it's uh, uh, kind of a, an act of defiance uh, to, to say, no, this is my culture, I will celebrate it, I will ensure its survival in the same way that uh, the, the ghettos were, the people in the ghettos were ensuring the survival of these songs as well. Yeah, that is, that is actually right, yeah. And it, this show taught me that. I didn't put that onto the show, yeah. yeah. Uh, in terms of this kind of uh, staging of the Ghetto Cabaret at 45 Downstairs, running from the 1st to the 18th of August, you've mentioned uh, Gary Abrahams, the director mm. you're collaborating with. Mm. Who else is part of the creative team? Well, we have fantastic uh, creative teams. So that Dan Barber uh, is a costume and set design and Rachel Burke on, is the lighting designer. Um, and... In the cast, we've got Evelyn Crape, who's a wonderful performer. Um, she also worked very closely with me. We're the artistic directors of the Kadima Yiddish Theatre and she worked quite closely with me on the development stages of the show. Um, and then we have Dimity Shepherd, so she's a wonderful opera singer. We have Jim Daly, a great actor, uh, Nelson, Nelson Gardner and Josh Rubin, both wonderful actors, and and two musicians, Alex Burkoy and Scott Griffiths. So the idea of the cast was to bring together um, an eclectic mix of people because that's exactly what happened in the ghettos. You didn't always have the full complement of performers or musicians that you would need for a show. So that's exactly what we've done. We've you got may one, do. You may do. So we have an opera singer, a comedic actor, a um, music theatre performer, violinist and a pianist, and we all sort of have come together, yeah. The Ghetto Cabaret is on at 45 Downstairs, 45 Flinders Lane in Melbourne from the 1st to the 18th of August. Uh, the songs that you've chosen uh, and are presenting in the work are from, what, ghettos across Europe or from a particular kind of focus? No, I actually chose songs from a variety of ghettos that would best represent what life would be like in the ghetto yeah, from all the sides and also in all the different music styles because they had classical works that were composed, operas, there were jazz, music theatre, tangos, all sorts of things. So I just chose a broad range of songs. And songs in English and Yiddish? Um, 
The songs are in a combination. Most of the songs we sing are in Yiddish and that is the whole idea of the show, that it's a linguistically diverse show, which I quite proud of but we do translate parts of the song so you will get a chorus in English so you know what the song's about yeah but even when people won't necessarily understand all the lyrics they will understand the emotion of the song it's like listening to any world music where you you totally can appreciate the song one of my favorite songs is I never understood the words <laughs> yeah as I said, uh, the Ghetto Cabaret is on at 45 Downstairs, 45 Flinders Lane, Melbourne. You can jump online for booking details at www.45downstairs.com. It's running from the 1st until the 18th of August. I've been talking with Galit Class about the production. I'm very much looking forward to seeing it once it's on. Galit, thanks so much for joining us at Triple R. Thank you. Triple R. Now, born in 1809, Edgar Allan Poe is not only the creator of the first modern detective story, he's one of the most influential writers of the macabre and of gothic fiction in the USA. He's gone on to influence the likes of H.P. Lovecraft, Stephen King and others. Why am I talking about Edgar Allan Poe, you ask? Well, there is a new work being presented from the 30th of July in North Melbourne called A Midnight Visit, which is an immersive kind of theatrical experience uh, inspired by the works of Poe. Joining us in the studio to tell us more, it's co-creators Danielle Harvey and Kirsten Siddle. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you so much, Richard. So this has been uh, described as kind of something akin to Sleep No More in New York, which some people may know about. It's an immersive storytelling environment in which you as an audience member can almost create your own kind of narrative through the show by what you experience. Danielle, tell us a little bit more. Why did you want to kind of create a midnight visit? Well, when Kirsten and I came together to form Broad Encounters, our company, we knew we wanted to do something extraordinary and something big and something bold. Um, we we have a great history of um, curating a lot of uh, work for various uh, uh, main stage uh performing arts venues across Australia and so we knew that there was something like this missing of scale and then in choosing Edgar Allan Poe to base the work on we felt that he was somebody that had had such huge influence over culture and it's still been felt today in popular culture that he would be the right place to start to build our world and and that's what we've been doing for the last seven weeks here in North Melbourne is starting to build that world to then invite audiences in to come and build their own um, imaginations and to build their own storylines with the help of the storylines that are there that are pulled from the stories that Poe wrote and also the real life and there's lots of uh, contemporary cues in there so you can navigate it in many ways you can follow characters and have a more linear structure or you can just lose yourself in the dream and what's the appeal of Poe as a writer well I think that when you read a Poe poem or a poet short story who's who's most known for that that medium there's a lot that he leaves out there's a lot that he lets you fill in um and that's where this great sense of mystery and suspense and something's not quite right comes in but when you get to the end of reading one of those stories 
you realise that there's a lot of details you didn't know and you yourself just filled in the blanks. Uh, the telltale heart is, is incredibly well known, but you don't know whether the person looking after the old man who ends up unfortunately dead was male or female. You don't know these details. So he's a great platform for creatives to come out and to start from somewhere and then use the shapes to colour in themselves. And that's the same thing for the audience. You're often find with great suspense and great thriller uh, it's that feeling of being unnerved of not knowing what's coming around the corner it's not um, schlocky in that sense it's not about you know jump scares and things like that it's about a sense of unnervingness of there's something bigger going on here and I really want to work it out and you're always on the edge of your seat and so his work to me, really spoke that way. And so as we started to research, we were like, yep, this is it. This is the one. We can we can build a whole world. And the great thing is he's so influential that you don't need to know anything about his work because those tropes are there. They're in movies, they're in uh, television shows, they're in Stranger Things, they're in all of the things that other people, um, you know, might be more familiar with. Kirsten, in terms of then creating... Uh a world and environment for this kind of experience to unfold in. It strikes me you've got a number of kind of uh, creative challenges, uh, one of which is just finding a venue of appropriate scale to to stage the work, but also a a venue that is affordable for kind of uh, uh, an independent production company as well. Talk to us about the nuts and bolts of making the work. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it is huge. And uh, every step of the way, there are a lot of challenges because uh, we don't. We can't rely on any of the structures or framework that you have in a traditional theatre making, where you know um, you have your stage and you have your audience out there, and uh, you build things in a, I guess, uh, build things uh, in order that the audience see you know the finished picture but of course there's uh, there's your wings and your backstage and and all of that kind of thing so um we've been really quite lucky but it is hard um we found uh this uh, warehouse that um was disused in north melbourne we need a lot of space um we play out over about oh it's um about 1600 square meters it's huge um there are th- 36 different rooms in there and um, finding a venue that allows us to um, create all of the spaces that we need is very difficult and I think uh, it took Danielle and I about two months here in Melbourne of really um, traipsing around and and looking at spaces and weighing things up and then of course um, because we are working in unconventional spaces um, we have have all of the um, stuff that you need to do through council in order to get approval to actually um, bring public into a space so Every step of the way, it's a big challenge. And I think that, you know, we in traditional theatres, the audience is very separate. But in our space, the audience are on stage constantly with our performers. Um, We also, because of that, uh, all of our finishes, all of the detail has to be really thought through. So um, I'm, you know, if, if you put your hand out and you're expecting to touch bricks, you need to feel like you're touching bricks. It can't be, um, it can't be a theatre flat, 
made to look like bricks as you would do on the stage. So we really try and make every space feel very real. And um, some of the spaces are very much um, beautiful sort of period rooms that you might expect Poe to have um, lurked around in. Um, But some of those spaces are really contemporary, um, beautiful, crazy, colourful, just heavenly dreamlike spaces, which is where we go to with, um, as um, Daniel was saying, you know, Poe's work, he had this great imagination. And so we have been able to take both um, uh, ideas and uh, his life as it was, but we've also been able to play that out. You know, know, he was imagining things into the future. And so we've got these great contemporary spaces as well. But um, we like to work over multiple floors. Um, We like to create a rabbit warren for people to explore. You never really know quite where you are in the building. And uh, and that's um, part of this beautiful um, discovery aspect of a midnight visit. Um, Audiences get to explore and be creative and choose their own path and depending um you know I was a big fan of choose your own adventures um when I was a kid and uh you know depending on whether you choose to go right or left or up or down or um that will determine what you see and which rooms you discover and sometimes people miss entire spaces and that's okay they'll see other things now everything you're saying is uh does remind me of Punch Drunk's Sleep No More in New York, which has become quite famous. To what extent is this an homage and how do you avoid uh, kind of replicating or creating some kind of, um, well, I, I guess some kind of pale imitation? Yeah. I mean, we, Danielle and I are um, big fans of um, Punch Drunk's work, not just Sleep No More, um, but there are a number of other companies um, who are doing a great immersive work um, out there in, in, international, uh, in, in the international um, field. Um, another great one is um, Third Rail Projects there in New York. Um, we also love the Meow Wolf team in Santa Fe. They don't do um, theatre per, per se, but they create these beautiful um, immersive installations. Um, and we certainly have been influenced by uh, all of these great companies and this great work. Um, I feel that uh, what we show in a midnight visit very much comes from Danielle's and my uh, interests and um, passions and also our our humour and what we find mm. uh, fun and funny. Um, so this work very much, I guess, you know, if you're if you're trying to sort of compare it with Sleep No More, if you if you enjoyed that Sleep No More experience, you are going to enjoy a midnight visit, absolutely. Um, a midnight visit has, uh, I guess, much more physicality to it. So, you know, when we say in our marketing, you know, you can creep, crawl or climb, we, we're very serious. You're quite literal, yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's right. So there's a great physicality to this piece. Um, there's also a lot of humour in there. Um, we also, Danielle and I, are very big fans of using all of the performing arts. And so... And also using all of the senses, I believe, correct. as well. This is a, a multi-sensory experience. That's mm-hmm. right. So, you know, we we don't just use movement or text-based um 
storytelling. We use circus. We use live music. Um, we um, we use burlesque. Uh, we use um, contemporary dance, um, classical dance, and of course text based uh, narrative to help tell our stories. And yes, uh, we do use all of all of the senses, including the sixth one. <laughs> um, and uh, we're you know we're very we think about all aspects of what an audience will experience and um, and try and play on all of those things in in each of the spaces. Danielle, the work's previously been presented in Sydney to and uh, uh, my friend Cassie Tung reviewed it for Time Out, uh, and one of her comments was um, resist the urge to stick with the group. This is your night in a dark dream world. She was clearly mm-hmm. quite taken by uh, much of the work. How much has it uh, evolved and been refined from its Sydney season to this Melbourne season? Each season has been different. We were in Perth before this and there's new performers and um, we really love to work with their skill sets, as you heard from Kirsten. There's lots of different kinds of performances. So when a new person is cast, we've got new characters uh, since Sydney as well. Uh, so it's uh, it, 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 it has many of those similar elements, but it's definitely keeps spinning into all directions, just like any kind of dream. It's... Um, it's a wonderful world to play in and um, throughout the season things evolve as well. While it's not an improvised show at all, we do pull it apart. There's so much source material for us to go back to. We might try a different piece of text. These sorts of things kind of continue to happen and I think it's just making the world stronger and stronger. So I'm very excited about Melbourne. Um, this is the third iteration and it really feels like, you know, uh, it feels familiar but really exciting. There's things that are grander. There's things that are um, even more colour-blocked. <laughs> there's, um, there's some very exciting performers that I'm, I'm really enjoying getting to know and, and working with, and, um, and we've really enjoyed our design crew and our build crew. So every single place we go to, we, we, we pick up new people and their fingerprints are all over it too, um, and that's the, the way that this show kind of evolves and, and the collaborative nature and the great nature of creative work. And this is a creative invitation, not just to the performers and the creators involved behind the scenes but also to the audience to come and engage their creativity come and play and for adults it's something that we don't get a lot of uh, opportunity to do so um, Cassie's uh, you know avoid the urge absolutely you can go with the crowd if that's how you're going to feel safer in this strange landscape but if you're somebody that just maybe stays back in that room something else might happen maybe go the other way uh maybe resist the urge to follow when they say follow these are just some of the things that um that uh some ways that you might want to navigate it but there's no right or wrong way yeah and as kirsten said that reference to the choose your own adventure Mm -hmm. this is the kind of work that you can experience two or three times and quite possibly have a very different experience each time depending on whether you turn left turn right follow this person stay here crawl through that doorway whatever you may choose yeah that's right it's um there's actually about uh 12 hours of content in the show so it's huge um we've had people come back you know, six, seven times and um, take different routes and see different scenes and they love it. Um, we've got people flying in actually from from Perth. One of our super fans um, was there six times in Perth and can't wait, can't, you know, is coming flying over because she wants to see it in this new iteration. We've got new rooms. She knows there's new characters. She know, You know, she knows it's going to be uh, fresh again, which is really exciting and um, can't wait for her to experience it here. 
If you want to learn more, Broad Encounters are presenting a midnight visit from the 30th of July until the 15th of September at 222 Macaulay Road, North Melbourne. Uh, you can find out more info at www.amidnightvisit.com. Tickets are on sale from $59. Uh, it sounds like it's going to be an intriguing evening. I'm looking forward to kind of diving in myself. Uh, Kirsten and Danielle, thanks so much for joining us here at Triple R. Thank you, Richard. R. We're into the home stretch of the program and uh, we're going to segue from kind of the gothic splendour of Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven to a rather more charming creature of the night. Bitsy is a new picture book by Nikki Greenberg who joins me in the studio now. It's about a young bat and her adventures in the daytime Uh, and it's also about overcoming bias and and the fears that perhaps we all have. Nikki, welcome to Triple R. Thank you so much, Richard. Now, when I first got to know you, I was your, it's Nikki Greenberg, you're a comic book maker uh, and you have continued to kind of evolve your kind of illustrative style and form. At what point did you shift from comics and graphic novels into children's picture books? Uh, so I had, um, I'd, I'd spent many years very much involved in comics, but before that in a past life when I was a teenager, I had actually done a range of children's picture books. But what really got me into very much into the picture book world um, about 10 years ago was uh, the birth of my uh, elder daughter, Poppy. And I, I took a lot of the uh, things that I'd learned from doing comics and brought them into this form. But, of course, the picture book form is very, very demanding because you have such limited space. You have to... Every page has to work very, very hard. That's the text and the illustrations. And it's a very concentrated, compact form. So a real challenge. Is every page an artwork in and of itself? It has to... The, a double-page spread, for example, has to tell a story. Uh, absolutely. And in this book particularly, I took quite a leap in, um, in my artistic style. And I, yes, every, every page is working very hard in terms of storytelling, atmosphere, the movement uh, from night to day and through the parts of the day. Uh, and of course, the, the character's own story, which involves uh, a couple of twists. Yeah. Several now, twists. Also, it's kind of, to harken back to your comic book work, so and people might know your uh, illustrated uh, The Great Gatsby or Hamlet, for example. Um, cartoons and comic books works on work on kind of the series of frames that may be laid out in a page. Um, uh, does that kind of form of storytelling then also work in a, a, a picture book? Except, kind of again, you're, instead of a series of frames on a page, you're turning the page and creating a new frame. For sure. Like a comic, it is sequential, but you tend to have... Uh, you tend to have fewer frames, fewer events going on on the one page, but there is a lot of movement, particularly in these pictures. So you'll see the characters uh, moving through an image uh, and it, it gives you perhaps a sense of being in more than one moment of time at the same time. Uh, I've opened to a page where little Bitsy in the daytime is hiding, quivering among the gum leaves while day creatures throw gum nuts at her and you can see that in in that picture you can see what the day creatures imagine sweet little bitsy as which is a sort of frightening uh, ghost bat 
Now, this is set in southwest WA. That's right. Why You're a Melbourne-based artist. Why not use Melbourne bats to tell your story and Melbourne creatures? Uh, so, well, this is, this is quite an interesting story. When I first wrote Bitsy, um, I imagined her as, I suppose, a European bat and the other creatures would be your standard woodland creatures, mice, bunnies, hedgehogs and so on. And my amazing publishers, Affirm, Affirm Press Kids, uh, said to me, we, we love Bitsy and we love the story but we hate these woodland animals. Why, why not make this an Australian book? And so I plunged into my research, which is something I do quite obsessively for my books, and I, I needed, well, the impetus to move it to Western Australia was that there is a character who is a numbat, and numbats are sadly very endangered. They're in very few places. And one of the places where there are numbats is the Dryandra woodlands, in, um, so a little bit east of Perth. Uh, so I had to look for an area where small, cute bats lived and numbats lived and uh, and the other day creatures, and that's the area I chose, and I went into a period of very intensive research about that. And a couple of did that involve a couple of trips to Perth to observe kind of uh, foliage and, and uh, fauna firsthand? Well, I had just before embarking on the illustrations for this, I had actually been in Perth for the Scribblers Festival, which is a children's literature festival, and I really enjoyed looking around um, Kings Park. Uh, which is a beautiful park. For people who haven't visited, at Perth, this huge slab of parkland on the edge of the city overlooking the, the river. Uh, it's a beautiful place to wander oh, around it's, in. It's stunning, yeah. um, mm. really gorgeous. But then when I was in the thick of the research, um, I wasn't able to nip over to Perth uh, or nip over to um, see the plants in real life. But I found the Cranbourne Botanic Gardens here in Melbourne, really fantastic resource. And then I borrowed a lot of books, um, a a lot of books about uh, plants and animals of Western Australia. And so the result is quite a densely researched book. Yeah. Now, it's uh, a hardback picture book uh, aimed at children aged three to seven. And as I mentioned at the start, the one of the the, the kind of through line, if you like, uh, is a message around confronting um, bias and uh, and whether that's around people's skin colour or around behaviours. Why did you want to explore this particular theme in a in a children's book? I think that so the message might partly be for the parents because I don't think children, particularly young children, naturally have a sort of uh, dislike or fear of people who look different but they they will certainly absorb those attitudes from the adults in their life um i wanted to tell this first and foremost as a story um i think that the story comes first before trying to push a message but that is a message that is that that i feel is very very important particularly in the current political climate and so i'm i'm happy to present that and it's one that kids can easily pick up on what that message is and easily see the error that the night creatures and the day creatures have made of being so prejudiced and so fearful of the other. I also love the fact that it's taking uh, a creature like a bat, which uh, is often associated with darkness, the supernatural, vampires, monsters, evil, and saying, no, bats are beautiful, lovely creatures. And so cute. I... I I just think this, <laughs> you're not supposed to have favourites, but I think this is the cutest creature I've ever drawn. 
well, uh, that's given that you've previously drawn uh, meerkats and squid and many other creatures. I, I can look. I can see the appeal for bats. Other people, I'm sure, would argue kind of for for meerkats, but then also numbats and. Uh, what I was looking for, and and echidna and frogs. So you've got lots of animals kind of to play with in here as well. Yes. Talk to us about the actual writing of the text and coupling text with illustration because obviously for because of the, the children this is aimed at, the illustration are kind of primary in many ways. They have to tell the story for you, but then accompanied by short, simple sentences and words that uh, a parent or guardian or family member or, or teacher can then kind of read and share the story as well. Yeah, absolutely. So I I am very, very particular about the writing of these books. Um, it's written in verse, and I've written a lot of books in verse. Um, that's a very challenging form to work in because you need to tell the story uh, effectively and excitingly and with great pacing and the page turns and so on. But it also has to rhyme. The rhythm has to be right. You have to play with the alliteration and the assonance. And this is a, a, a quite a difficult process but it's something I love I think it's the thing I love doing the most Uh, so I wrote the book uh, before I had really thought about the illustrations and the the style and and as I said I'd been thinking about it as European uh, and perhaps a more uh, a a more standard sort of style Um, but what emerged was a very lush sort of painterly style, a lot of texture, a lot of depth of colour. And so putting these pictures together was very much about creating an atmosphere as well as the bounce and swoop and interaction of the characters. And in terms of the medium that you're working with the, for these illustrations, are you painting, are you drawing, Is it? are you doing it kind of digitally? Uh, it's all three. So I, I work a lot digitally, but I'm always striving to have the, the result feel organic and handmade and not have that kind of computery, over-polished look. But what I do is for, for all of those uh, very variegated textures, I paint in a random way on paper, in acrylics and in inks and in watercolour, and then I take those those big sheets of paint and scan them and use them to to um, put together collages uh, in Photoshop. And so it's a real combination of pencil drawing, drawing on the computer, painting, um, putting it and bringing it all together. And also making sure that your characters uh, have personality as well. The the page I've just uh, opened to, we have Bitsy being warned about the beasts howling and prowling and lurking and leaping, swooping and snatching and slithery creeping. Stay here in the cave, Bitsy. Stay out of sight. Never, oh never, go out in the light. Concerned parent or kind of older bat portraying, giving this message... Bitsy kind of rolling her eyes and looking kind of like a little bit bored. Kind of, in terms of the character, how do you convey character? How do you do that kind of visually as well as through the story? So that is, um, that is very much about having fresh, lively facial expressions, body language as well, of course. And there's a bit of magic in drawing good facial expressions and sometimes you try and try and try and it just doesn't come out and sometimes you nail it on the first go. Um, But what I like is simplicity, using as few lines as possible and just 
trying to capture the sort of fleeting movement of that facial expression, but the eye roll on that page, uh, I actually have to credit to my fabulous editors. I had drawn Bitsy sort of looking... perhaps a less extreme expression on that face and they said oh give her an eye roll go on have her really rolling her eyes and I did and it it just um added the it added a great little touch to that page well good on the editors and good that they get a shout out as well because editors the the art of the editor is sometimes kind of overlooked or forgotten so. oh i i i can't speak highly enough of my editors on this book and they really helped bring it to i think another level I'm speaking with uh, author and illustrator Nikki Greenberg about her new picture book, Bitsy, which was published uh, at the end of June. Uh, it's retailing for twenty four ninety nine, hardback, 32 pages. It's a picture book for kids aged three to seven. You've got a female lead. That was clearly a very, very conscious decision to have uh, Bitsy not be a boy bat, but a girl bat. Well, that's funny you say that because Bitsy was just a girl bat. I mean, as in that's what it wasn't um, a conscious decision. I must have a female protagonist here. Bitsy, as she came into my mind, was clearly Bitsy, a girl bat. Um, And I've done lots of books with female protagonists, um, some with male protagonists, and it is really about who the character is in my mind. Um, Yeah. Uh, and and that is that's who Bitsy is. So her character was the first thing that came to me. Her name and her character. Well, I get the uh, the feeling that she's a very appealing character. Uh, will we be seeing more adventures of Bitsy, perhaps? Well, I that is something I had not even turned my mind to, but. It's a very appealing idea. I'd also like to see a soft toy Bitsy. I think some merchandising oh. could be fun because she's a kind of she has she really has character. She kind of jumps off the page. So uh, Bitsy by Nikki Greenberg is yes, it's a, a book with a message about overcoming fear and prejudice, but it's also a charming uh, kind of book and it looks beautiful. So if you've got uh, kids aged three to seven or thereabouts in your life, it's uh, I think it's something to pick up. Nikki, are you doing any kind of uh, reading? at any bookshops? I know the the publication was la- and launch was last month, but have you got any kind of events coming up where kind of uh, you're going to be doing some storytelling or uh, il- classes teaching kids to, to to draw books of their own? Anything along those lines? Uh, so we've had a few story times. I'm going to be doing a lot of school talks in and around Book Week, um, but public readings. Uh, none that I can think of right now. <laughs> if people want to learn more about what else Nikki Greenberg has created, jump online, www.nikkigreenberg.com. And uh, Bitsy, published by Affirm Press Kids, is in good bookstores everywhere. If it's not in your local bookstore, I'm not saying they're a bad bookstore, but I'm saying you should ask them to order it in. Nikki Greenberg, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much, Richard. <laughs> This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.